We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Hello, everybody. My name is Hans, and I'm an alcoholic. I got sober the last time on January 26, 2004. You know, I was just thinking, I opened with saying I was an alcoholic, and I recall that the first time I ever said that, or the first time I remember saying that, was back in, I think it was 1998, when I was an intake for a drug and alcohol recovery program in the East Bay, San Francisco East Bay. And they were asking me why I was there. And in a very quivering voice with tears in my eyes, I said, because I'm an alcoholic. And that was the first time I ever admitted that to somebody. I didn't really want to be an alcoholic. It wasn't something I chose to be. It was just something I was. And I had to do something about it. To me, that was probably the first time that I began working the first step. I admitted to somebody, I admitted to myself that I was powerless over alcohol. But I've always thought that the first step is really sort of two steps, or at least it's a two-part step. The first part is admitting that you were powerless over alcohol or some other substance. And the second part is admitting that your, your life had become unmanageable. And that was the part that I didn't get right away. It took me close to six years to fully work the first step and get the understanding that my life truly had become unmanageable. You know, before I kind of go into that, I want to kind of back up and talk a little bit about my childhood because that's an important part of my story. When I first came to AA meetings, I heard a lot of shares and I heard a number of people talk about growing up in perhaps dysfunctional homes, homes where there was abuse, homes where there was alcoholism, um, homes where there were drugs. That is not my story. I grew up in a home with two very loving parents. I had everything I needed and pretty much most of what I wanted. Alcohol was not a, a big issue in my home. I had very little exposure growing up to alcohol. My mother didn't drink at all for religious reasons. And my dad would come home from work and he would have a, a bourbon and Coke before dinner. And that was it. Just one. <laughs> I don't really remember. I may have seen him tipsy a couple times. Yeah, I never saw anyone in my family abuse alcohol. Growing up, I was a pretty shy kid. I, I kind of never felt like I quite fit in. You know, I wasn't one of the cool kids. I, was, I didn't run with the popular crowd. I was just kind of on the periphery. 
I got good grades and I had a few close friends, but I had a friend who was a teacher later in life. And we were talking about the different cliques and groups growing up in grade school and junior high and high school. And she used to say, well, you know, there's lots of groups. There's the jocks. There's the the stoners. Um, there's the nerds. And then there's there's the invisible kids, kids who really weren't part of any group. And that's me. I really wasn't part of any group. I didn't really fit in to any of those those boxes growing up. I grew up in the Midwest outside of Chicago in a small town. I remember when I was in, I believe it was first or second grade, uh, I was in, a, in the car and my mom was driving myself and my older sister to grade school. And I was sitting in the back and my sister was in the front. You could do that in those days. And my sister was talking to my mom. She said, my friend Susie told me yesterday that she was adopted. And what does that mean? And my mo- there was a long pause, and my mother explained what adopted meant. And she said, you know, both you and your brother are adopted. It just, I remember that day, I was probably seven, eight years old. I remember it as if it was yesterday. It really made an impact on me. And what was interesting is that is the last time that was ever discussed until I was an adult. That also made me feel different. It also made me feel different than other kids. It, perhaps that was the reason I didn't, didn't fit in. I'm going to touch on that a bit later. For me, adoption is a big part of my story. I have since in meetings talked to many people who were adopted and just it's it's a significant part of growing up and a significant part of who I am. I was what you'd call a late bloomer. Since alcohol wasn't prevalent in the house and I didn't have a whole lot of friends and wasn't part of the cool kids, I didn't get invited to parties. So my first drunk was when I was about 16. I, at that point, was going to a boarding school. I uh, went home for, I believe it was Thanksgiving break, and somehow I got a hold of a, a fifth of Jack Daniels, and I snuck it back into the dorms in my suitcase when we came back from Thanksgiving break. And that first weekend, uh, after lights out, I snuck out with a few friends out of the dorm, across campus. We climbed up a hill that was on the side of the campus. And four of us, well, actually three of us, finished that bottle of Jack Daniels. And that was the first time that I got drunk. The fourth kid didn't chose not to. Uh, I don't know. He was maybe our designated walker, got us back safe. But uh, three of us kids, and literally we were kids, polished off that bottle. I don't remember getting back to my dorm room. So from my first drink, from my first drunk, I was a blackout drinker. Not every time, but certainly that first time and certainly many times after. I woke up the next morning and it was Saturday and I still was drunk. 
I still had a, a good buzz on. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, this is great. I'm going to have to do this again. And that is kind of what I chased, that feeling for the next, I don't know, 15, 20 years. After that was high school. And after high school, I transferred to a college that was local. And what I found is as I became part of different groups, I joined a group that essentially we were uh, like stage crew. So it was a group that was did plays and uh, musicals. And they would, after rehearsals, go out to a local restaurant and have cocktails and appetizers. And so we joined them. And I became part of that group. And it was really the kind of the first time that I fit in. And alcohol was a big part of fitting in. It loosened me up. It made me feel part of. It allowed me to carry on a conversation where before I might be too nervous to talk to somebody. That was a big part of my college experience. Alcohol, I sort of took off drinking. Started slowly, just weekends and whatnot. And then as I progressed, by the time I was a senior, I was pretty much drinking every day. Not necessarily to excess, but maybe a couple beers in the evening as I did my homework. During my last year, my older sister got married. And I went down to, well, it was Coral Gables, so South Miami area, Dade County. And at that point, that was the mid-80s, and they were having a big problem with drug wars down there, shootouts between cocaine dealers. So I went down early and ended up going to a bachelor party for my soon-to-be brother-in-law. And it was, you know, six, eight, maybe ten of his friends. And we sat in an apartment, and we drank beers, and we drank more beers. And at some point when we'd had plenty, somebody decided it would be a great idea for us all to go out and shoot off some fireworks that somebody had. So we walked, I don't know how far, a couple blocks, half a mile, found a big kind of open grassy field in front of a church, and they started to shoot off fireworks. Well, I sort of passed out, and next thing I know, a bottle rock rocket is exploding next to my head. So that woke me up. And it occurred to me that we had been there a while and it wasn't a good idea to be hanging around. So I took off walking and I stumbled through an apartment complex. And again, this was a time in South Miami where crime was high and drug wars were, were everything. And so as I rounded the corner of this apartment complex, there was a security guard. And he spoke no English and he unholstered his pistol and pointed it at me and kind of pointed for me to walk in front of him. And I think back and I think my my story is not all that excited. But then I had episodes like that. I was on the wrong end of a gun twice in my life and both involved alcohol. That guard escorted me out to the parking lot at gunpoint and there was a cop car there with its lights on and the cop got out cuffed me 
threw me in the back of the car and took off and pulled up to the field that we had been shooting off fireworks in and escorted me out. And all of our friends were sitting on the ground with cops surrounding them. They had calls. They thought it was gunfire. They thought it was a big incident. So more than anything, they were just pissed. But that was early on in my drinking career. And already I was suffering consequences. Albeit we got off easy, they scolded us and they sent us home and took our, our booze and our fireworks. But that's that's kind of how I drank. I have many stories like that where I got into trouble, but on sort of the fringe of deep trouble. And then for some reason or another, I got off. So the consequences weren't that significant. As I believe it was my junior year in college, my mom got sick and she ended up dying. And that also had a huge impact on me. Loss to me is one of the hardest emotions, you know, whether it's loss of a relationship, loss due to death, loss of a job. I just really couldn't deal with that feeling. I was very close to my mom. And so I had never really dealt with death before. And here I was 20. And probably the most important person in my life died, left me. Uh, what I did to deal with those emotions was drink more. And I believe that's kind of when my drinking took off. I was able to hold it together and graduate from college. And I ended up, again, I was in the Midwest. I ended up moving out shortly after I graduated to the San Francisco Bay Area. And I soon got a job in corporate finance, and every day I jumped on a, a train and took the train into the city, worked hard, and soon found that our department and a few other folks in nearby departments liked to go out after work to a local bar, restaurant, and drink. So that was kind of my pattern. I would go to work. I would work eight or ten hours. We would then all get together and we would go out and we would party for four or five hours. And then I would jump on a train, take it back home, stumble home, get a little bit of sleep and then do it all over the next day. I like to call those the the Groundhog Day years. That was my 20s. If you've ever seen the movie The Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, it's like he wakes up and every day's pretty much the same, but maybe a little different. And that is just how I spent most of my 20s, working, partying, going home, getting a little bit of sleep. During that time, my drinking progressed, went from weekend drinking, serious weekend drinking, and drinking a few in the evening to pretty much drinking to almost passing out every evening. Every now and then I'd be hung over and have to go into work the next day. And I had a friend who introduced me to a trick that he called hair of the dog. If you know, if you had a little pop in the morning or maybe a couple pops in the morning, it really eased the hangover. So sometimes I'd get to work and I'd be miserable all morning. And then I'd go out to lunch and have a couple beers. And that would kind of ease me out or smooth me over. It wasn't every day, but maybe it was once, twice a week. And then we'd do it all over again. 
I ended up in my late 20s leaving the corporate world and starting my own business. One of the issues there is I basically, I was the boss, so I had zero accountability to anybody. I had a good manager, and if I was too hungover to go into work that day, i just tell her I was working at home. And that's really when I started drinking in the mornings. Again, not every morning, but two or three times a week. I wake up, I feel shitty, and I have a vodka and orange juice. During this time, I got married and we had our first child. One of the first memories of what I would call a, a moment of clarity was uh, when we I had an, a Christmas party and my wife, we had a babysitter and my wife and I went to this Christmas party for my, my company. And I, as usual, had too much to drink. She went home early. I got home later, sort of stumbled into the bedroom and she was in the bed sleeping with our then baby, probably six month old next to her. And she asked me to take him to his crib. And I picked him up and stumbled and almost dropped him. And that's when it just occurred to me, this, I, I've got to make a change in my life. That's the, the first uh, noticing of unmanageability. Later, she was not happy about that. Later the next day, we had a serious talk. And she said, you, you've got a problem. You need to address it. I will wait a bit till you're ready, but I won't wait forever. And so I realized I had to do something, if not for me, for her. And so what I decided to do is go to a therapist. Because why not pay somebody 150 bucks an hour to fix me, right? That's the easy way. So. That was 1996, and I went to a therapist and was there probably a month or two. He saw through clearly what my issues were. Finally, he said, you know, I've got another client of mine who has had really good success with Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'd like to see if you can maybe join him and go to a meeting. He'd love to take you. So begrudgingly, I said, okay, I didn't really want to go to AA, but I, I, you know, I let him call me and sure enough, he said, Hey, there's a great meeting on Sunday morning. I said, great. I'll meet you there. And he goes, no, 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 no. I'll come by and pick you up because he, he knew I wouldn't get there. So, uh, I gave him my address and, uh, you know, it was a, a January morning. It was pouring rain. It was cold and I was hungover. And I remember him picking me up and driving to this little, they called it the hut in Lafayette, California. It was just a little shack sort of next to a little league field. And that's where they had meetings. We piled into there. There were about 15 or 20 people. And again, I was soaking wet, shivering, hungover. And it was a book study. So they passed the book around and I passed when it got to my turn. I don't recall really hearing anything anybody said at that meeting. But at the end, this gentleman drove me home. He got my number. 
He followed up, called me later that week a couple times. Yeah, that was my first AA experience. The reality is it took me about two years to get back to AA. I stopped seeing the therapist and I continued my drinking. Finally, my wife had had enough and that was pretty much the end of our marriage. I moved out, got an apartment. I I ended up checking myself into a rehab program at a clinic in Walnut Creek, California. I did initially an outpatient all day long outpatient program for about two to four weeks. And then it became sort of a part-time mornings only. And really one of the blessings of that program was that they introduced us to AA. That was part of their program. They required us to go to a certain amount of meetings. They required us to work the first three steps and they required us to get a sponsor. So I did start to go to meetings. Uh, I think it was two or three a week that they required us to, to go to. And I got a sponsor. And of course, I got a sponsor who really wasn't available to do much with me. He was earning a graduate degree and was busy with school. And we really never found much time to meet and never really worked the steps. And that was the first time that I got any bit of sobriety. I was sobriety for, I was sober for, oh, a little less than six months. But the reality is I was miserable that whole time. I was what you'd call a dry drunk. So I was going through the motions. I was going to meetings. I quote unquote had a sponsor. I was participating in the rehab program. But the reality is I really wasn't taking it to heart. Every time I walked into the grocery store, I would walk past that aisle of booze and it would just call to me. And that's the way it was for six months. It was just pure misery. I ended up picking up again after about six months. Yeah, the next six years were basically coming in and out of AA. And the good news is I kept trying. And each time I'd come back, you know, sometimes I'd be out for a month, two months, three months, six months, come back, get a little bit of sobriety. Each time I came back, I would try and do something different. The old way wasn't working. What can I do this time? So I did start to listen to the suggestions in the rooms. Surround yourself with people who are sober. Get a sponsor, a real sponsor, and work the steps. So I I did that. I got my first real sponsor, Matt M., and we worked the steps. Another thing I did is I tried to spend time with sober people. I didn't have a lot of sober people that I knew because most of the people I knew before I got sober were heavy drinkers like me. I started golfing once a month with a group of guys from that fellowship. And, you know, we'd go out and play golf all day. And then some people would go out to dinner. And I did that for a number of months and was able to build up 18 months of sobriety. One day, one Saturday, we went out, we played 18 holes and we all met in the parking lot afterwards. And about half the group said, Hey, let's go out and we're going to go to this Mexican restaurant and get some food. And I said, you know, I think I'm going to pass, going to go home. 
got in my car after spending six hours with a group of sober alcoholics and on the way home stopped at a liquor store and picked up a 12 pack. And I was out again for another year. And to this day, I can't tell you why. It just happened. <laughs> for for many, many uh, months, I looked for reasons. Why did it happen? Why did it happen? And I ended up going back to meetings and tried to get sober again and just couldn't. One time I was at a meeting and I was talking about that experience. And I said, I, I just don't know why this happened. And an old timer said, it happened because you were thirsty. Now get over it. And that's kind of what it took for me to just move past it. I ended up after about a year really wanting to, to get sober again and called my old sponsor, Matt, and said, hey, I, I got to get sober. Will you sponsor me again? And there was a long pause. And Matt said, he goes, I'm always happy to help you out. But I want you to make a couple commitments. First of all, the main thing I want you to do is I want you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days because that's something you haven't done before. If you're not willing to do that, I would question your willingness to get sober. Well, at the time, I was a single dad. I had my kids half time. I owned my own business, which I was running. And, you know, I didn't think I had enough time to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. But I certainly had enough time to drink every night. So the reality is I did it. And I haven't had a drink since then. Apparently, that's what it took. It took the willingness to do something that I really didn't want to do, uh, plus many other things, to get some long-term sobriety. Alcohol had controlled everything in my life up to that point. All of my hobbies, all of my activities, my restaurant choices were all based on alcohol and drinking. And so I finally saw how unmanageable that part of my life was. That's when I truly got the second part of the first step, the unmanageability. The other thing that I came to realize, and, and I heard this from somebody in the program, and it really sunk in, is I kept looking for why. Why was I an alcoholic? I didn't understand, didn't grow up in an alcoholic household. I didn't have abuse, blah, blah, blah. Why was I an alcoholic? Well, somebody said, you know, this isn't a why program. This is a how program. AA teaches you how to, to lead a sober, happy life if you follow directions. It doesn't explain why. And what I found, and I found that to be very true, and when I finally gave up looking for the why, I was able to get long-term sobriety. They say in the rooms, more will be revealed. For those out you who are stuck on trying to figure out why you're an addict or why you're an alcoholic, just move past it. Start focusing on how you can live a sober, happy life, what you need to do to do that. More will be revealed. Down the road, you'll be able to analyze and work through that. But in early sobriety, that's not the time to do it. So that my last drink was on January 26th, actually January 25th, 2004. 
And for that first year or two, other than the 90 and 90, I went to about five meetings a week. I became a regular at a noon meetings. My schedule allowed me to attend noon meetings. I got to know people in those meetings. When I didn't show up, people would pick up the phone and say, hey, we missed you today. I also got to know a couple good friends in AA. My best friend, my best buddy, Peter, I had known him for the five to six years that I struggled to get sober, and we had hung out. And and during that time, he had maintained his sobriety. So when I finally got sober, he had six years. And so I spent a lot of time with Peter, and we became really close friends. And then his job ended up taking him out of town. He worked in London on a big construction project and would only come home once every month or two. And when he did, we'd get together and we'd go to meetings and we'd hang out. And, you know, I'd talk to him and I'd say, how how are things in, in London? And he'd say, yeah, no, I tried meetings there, but they're not the same and I'm really busy. And, you know, he kind of drifted from the program. And then he came back from London for a bit and we went to meetings and then he worked in outside of Chicago and kind of the same thing happened. He just did not plug in after that temporary relocation. After 12 years, my best friend Peter picked up a drink and he shortly lost everything. He lost his career, he lost his home, and he ended up living on the streets. And that was a really difficult thing for me to watch. I did what I could to help him. But as you find out that you have to have somebody who's willing to receive help. And if they're not, there's nothing you can do that's going to get them sober. So I watched him circle the drain. And I, at that point, had about five or six years sobriety. And I got to be honest, I was becoming a bit complacent. My five meetings a week turned into maybe two or three meetings a week, and then one meeting a week, and then maybe one meeting every other week. And Peter's lapse back into drinking scared me, and it got me back in touch with the program. And I ended up going to meetings again regularly. He was He saved me. I'm happy to say that he was finally able to get sober again. It took him another six years of being homeless and being in programs and in and out. But he's finally plugged back in. And many people don't. Many people, when they lose sobriety, particularly those who've had long-term sobriety, double-digit sobriety, never get back in. I'm grateful that he has. The fellowship ended up being an important part of my program. The fellowship in the East Bay of San Francisco, where I got sober, was a very social fellowship. People went out to coffee after meetings, coffee and dessert, or dinner after a five o'clock meeting, or we do bowling night, sober bowling night, or whatever. I came to plug into that. I found that if I hung around sober people and I learned to have fun being sober, 
then I could maintain sobriety. Because as somebody said in a meeting once, unless I'm as happy sober as I was drunk, I'm not going to stay sober. So it's so important to me to not only get the physical sobriety, but to figure out how to be happy in sobriety or it's not going to last. I look back and what I'd done is I learned to become one of the cool kids, but it no longer took alcohol. I hung around with sober people. I had fun. I had friends. I felt a part of, but it didn't, it wasn't because of alcohol. After about a dozen years in that fellowship, I met my wife, my current wife, and shortly thereafter, due to her job, we ended up moving and we relocated. And that was a, a challenge for me in sobriety. You know, I had really plugged into a group and had very close friends. We had gone through a lot in 10, 12 years of all of us getting sober together. So I came to a new area and basically I had to become a newcomer again. I had seen what had happened to my friend Peter, who didn't plug in when he moved, when he relocated. And I'd heard many stories about people who moved and, oh, AA is different there. And they stopped going to meetings. And the reality is that led to them picking up again. I did not want that to happen. So the first week I was in town, I started going to meetings and I went to a bunch until I found a few that I really liked. And as weird as it felt, I raised my hand and said, hi, I'm new to the area. For a shy guy like me, that was kind of difficult to do. I, Again, as I said, it's kind of like becoming a newcomer again. I was, over time, able to make new friends. Although this group up here, I don't find them to be quite as social, I was able to plug in. I have guys that I connect with. We go out to lunch. I have a local sponsor. I'm having lunch with him next week. There's a group of guys that go out to dinner once a month. And for a while before COVID, started a, a, a sober hiking group where we would go out on Saturdays on hikes. Again, it's so important for me and to introduce newcomers to having fun, enjoying sobriety with other sober people. After almost six years in this new fellowship, I'm finding myself having to move again and relocate. Once again, my wife is getting transferred. And just when I feel like I was plugging in, we're going to be moving to Phoenix. And, you know, I know how to do it now because I've done it before. It's still going to feel awkward when I get down there. I'm going to be the new guy. I'm going to go to meetings. I'm not going to know anybody. I'm going to have to raise my hand and say I'm new to the area. But I will get plugged in. It'll take some time, but it'll happen. So that is pretty much my story. I just have a few things for you know, possibly the newcomer who's listening to this. If you can learn a few things from me, here they are. First of all, don't worry about the why. Worry about the how. The why will come over time. Secondly, Look for the similarities. Don't look for the differences. When I came into the program, you know, it was all about, well, you don't have a similar job to mine. 
or you make a lot more money than I do or a lot less money than I do. You grew up in an alcoholic household and I didn't. So if I had just listened closely to their stories, I would have understood that the similarities were in their struggle with alcohol. And that's what makes us all the same. Finally, over my sobriety, I've had friends who have gotten sober. Some of them have tried AA and not continued with it and stayed sober and stayed happy. I realize that AA is not the only way. Some people use the church. Some people use therapists. But I know for me, AA is the best way. It keeps me plugged in and it keeps me connected. And I truly believe that's why I'm sober today. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, Hans. That was fantastic to listen to you for such a period of time. I've never heard so much of you, and I I enjoyed it. Thanks. Lots of wisdom and lots of hope. Your hope with going out and coming back and struggling for so long and Peter's and then wisdom sewn throughout the whole thing. It was, I really enjoyed it. I do have a couple questions, but before I get into my questions, I wanted to see if you could talk about adoption early on. You said that was a big part of who you are, and I'm not sure you had the opportunity to touch on that again. Well, thanks. Yeah. You know, I didn't go into it in as much detail as I, as I thought I would. (laughs) As I said, one of the, the emotions that I struggle with, because I, I think that many of us in the program have a hard time with emotions particularly when we don't have alcohol or drugs to mask or deaden those emotions. And loss is one of those. I talked a little bit about losing my mother when I was 20 and my drinking really taking off. Well, the reality is I first lost my mother, my birth mother, at birth. And although I can't remember that, and some people say we aren't cognizant of it, I believe that there's an emotional guttural loss there that adopted children know. They feel deep down. They may not know what it's from, but from losing your maternal connection early on as a baby. I've done a lot of work around adoption and done a lot of reading. And one of the things that stood out to me is... Although adopted people only represent about two to three percent of the general population, they represent about 30 to 40 percent of the population that is incarcerated, are in institutions, or have drug and alcohol problems. To me, that speaks volumes. Wow. Yeah, that does. So clearly, adoption to me is a, is a, I believe that addiction is twofold. And this is just Hans's opinion. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I believe that it's genetic. I think we all have a, a gene which precludes us to be, I guess, more receptive to addiction 
a therapist once described it to me. It's like a toggle switch, if you know what a toggle switch is. Mm-hmm. Once you flip it, you can't flip it back. I think it's twofold. I think it's having that toggle switch in your genetic profile and then also having some emotional distress that flips that toggle switch. That emotional distress can be a variety of things. I believe for me and many others, it's the loss of adoption that adoption creates. I believe my toggle switch was flipped early on. For some others, it's it's physical abuse, uh, emotional abuse, things like like rape or sexual abuse that flips that toggle switch. And I have a good friend, and uh, he had all of the signs and characteristics of having the gene. His mother died of alcoholism. He just he drank with the best of us. <laughs> he he kept up with me drink for drink, but for some reason that switch for him was never flipped. So yeah, that's just kind of my take on it. You may not have an answer for this one, but okay. if you had known you were adopted, you know, now they have these kids books where parents are telling their kids immediately. They just know from the beginning that, oh, you didn't grow in mommy's belly. I adopted you from your birth mom. Mm-hmm. Do you think it would have been different as opposed to being told when you were six or seven? That's a good question. So both of my kids are adopted. My first wife was unable to have kids. And so we ended up adopting and both of my kids have been to drug and alcohol treatment programs. And we early on raised them, letting them know that they were adopted and letting them know if they ever wanted to contact their birth parents that they could. So if that's an indication, it probably wouldn't have made a difference. The loss is still there. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's tough to know. There are so many factors leading up to addiction in addition to the genetics part of it. I don't know. I don't know. So my sister is adopted as well. And she's a normie. <laughs> she's, she's not an addict. Um, she doesn't have any issues. I don't know why that is. Maybe she didn't get the genetic part of it. Maybe she has the loss part of it, but the addiction doesn't run in her, her genes, her birth family, whereas it probably does in mine. I appreciate your open-mindedness about it. It's not just a one solution or one problem. There's a lot of moving parts here. It's hard to say. Yeah. The data is hard to digest. I'm going to have to look into that some more. Yeah. You had said that your mom, your adopted mother, not your biological mother, had died when you were in college. And that was when you were talking about how loss is one of the hardest emotions. And then you you really quickly said, she left me. Mm. Were you referring to... Your mother that raised you or your biological mother? I was referring to my mother who raised me. So I was very close to my mother. You know, I guess you could, you could have called me a mama's boy. 
I was closer to my mom than I was my dad growing up. Yeah, so a little bit of a backstory. My my mother was a Christian scientist, which some people know what that is, others don't. That's why she didn't drink or smoke. And Christian scientists are a believe in spiritual healing. So generally they don't go to doctors. They seek treatment through prayer. And she was one of the most devout people I knew, which is probably why I had a big struggle with religion and God in the AA program. Well, there really is no religion in the AA program. Let me correct myself. But there is the term God. And when I came into the program, I, if I wasn't an atheist, I was certainly was an agnostic. And I really felt that God had let me down. The God that I was raised with basically didn't come through for my mom. My mom had cancer and she attempted to heal herself spiritually and it did not work. And so I felt that she left me and God had abandoned her and abandoned me. How did you reconcile that in the program and step 11? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> I was, when you first said, how did you reconcile that? My first response was I drank heavily. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I reconciled it for many years. Post 2004. Yes. Yes. You know, there isn't an event or anything that I can point to. I still don't really pray today much. I'm not one of those people who gets down on my knees daily. I loved, I used to go to a meditation meeting in my old fellowship. I learned to meditate. I don't do it as often as I should. And I have a power greater than myself. I choose not to call it God, (laughs) but I know that whatever, whatever it is, whether it's nature, whether it's the energy of the universe, I once said in a meeting, the two places that I feel closest to God are hiking and in a meeting of AA. I just have over time come to, I guess, realize what my higher power or power greater than myself is to me. And it's not religious and it's not necessarily conventional. Yeah, it just, it just, it's, it wasn't an event. <laughs> it just sort of took many years of gelling for me to understand. And I'm sure it's going to change over time. So that's a tough one to answer. I thought you did a great job answering it. Well, thanks. Especially that last part where you're talking about it potentially changing over time. And that's the crux of the program is being open-minded and willing. Right. It works for me now, but you know, I'm open-minded. It might change. Who knows? Yeah. Life, life changes frequently. <laughs> yeah. So. Okay. Well, you kind of already answered my typical final question, which is for the alcoholic out there listening and suffering, what message do you want to leave with them? And you did that at the end of your share. So I'm going to pivot and okay. see you are moving out of state to a new place. If I'm I think there's a little bit of excitement in you about potentially 
becoming a part of a new fellowship, what message do you want to leave for Hans six months from now when you're feeling like a newcomer and you're feeling like you don't fit in? What do you want to tell that Hans, future Hans? I would like to tell that Hans that it takes time. Relationships take time to build. And that's essentially what we have in the program. We have relationships with other sober alcoholics. And I can't waltz into a new fellowship and expect to it to feel like I've been there for five years, like I have here. Yeah, if I put in the effort to developing new relationships in a new fellowship, then that will pay off over time. I just need to be patient. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.